Zakawani, the flying winger. Oh, goodness me! He doesn't mean anybody, Steve Zakawani! Steve Zakawani was never fun <laughs> to stick up against. Was it for Zakawani? None of this is possible. It's Steve! It's Steve! <laughs> this is so weird. Steve Zakawani! Hey, what's up, everyone? Steve Zakawani here, sitting in Pioneer Square at the Sounders headquarters the morning after. A great game, actually. A much better game than I thought it would be. Sounders FC at home against San Jose Earthquakes last night. It was a great game. We're going to recap that. We're also going to recap the game on Sunday, which was the defeat, the first and only one of the season against LAFC down in Los Angeles. And then preview. Again, LAFC coming to to Seattle on Sunday. And I have a feeling we'll see a much different game than what we saw this past Sunday um, when the return game is here on Sunday. And we'll also air a little clip of my trip to the UK a couple months ago where I got to catch up with an old friend, a voice we still hear on so many of the Premiership um, broadcasts, Arlo White. I sat down with Arlo in Derby. So on our way to visit DeAndre, we actually stopped and saw... Arlo White, we had a great chat about his time here in Seattle. Um, I found out a couple of things I never knew um, about his time here in Seattle. It was really great, so we'll air that for you. But there's only one place to begin, and that's the recap of the two games we saw this weekend. This week, this past two games. One weekend, one midweek. Very different games. The LAFC game, I hate to be proven right in some situations, even though it's good to be right, but not when it affects the team negatively. I sensed... Early on in the year when I watched the Sounders playing and I knew that the gap in the midfield, you kind of think, okay, how will we miss Alonso? And I'd said when the team faces a really good playmaker, it could be someone who comes in off the wing like Carlos Vela does, or it could be a true traditional number 10 like Pozuelo for Toronto. I felt in those games Alonso would be missed. And I was right and I was wrong. I was right that he would be missed, but I was wrong because the thing I said he'd be missed for, it's that and then some. He'd be missed because he can shut down that guy. I played, you know, countless games alongside him. And the amount of times, maybe five minutes in, ten minutes in, we would see the other team's playmaker dominating the game, doing stuff that, you know, is going to cause us problems. And you would see Alonso take it upon himself. He didn't, he didn't talk much on the pitch. He would just take it upon himself to say, I'm going to close this guy down. I'm going to put a stop to the damage he's causing us. And he was fantastic at that. But the thing that was underrated, and I only came to appreciate years later when I began actually analyzing him and not playing alongside him every week, was once he won the ball, the way he built the attacks. And he got better and better and better at that as his career went on. Alonso is the guy who would go to Stefan Fry, get the ball, build the attacks. He passed through lanes to Nico, Victor Rodriguez. He's just an incredible on-the-ball player. When you want possession, that's the number one guy I would want to have. And so when you play a team like LAFC, okay, so Carlos Vera is going to cause you problems. When he's coming inside, if Alonso, you know, not saying kick him and foul him, but he's going to put a strong tackle on him to let him know you're in a game today. He's going to think twice about coming inside in that same way as the game goes on. But once the Sounders were struggling because the uh, LAFC, the press was incredible. You call it counter-pressing, Geiger-pressing, whatever. You no, know, the Jurgen Klopp style. 
where you lose the ball and impacts three or four players, surround one player. They were double teaming um, Nico Ladero. The Sounders couldn't get out. Could not find Nico, who's the outlet, who then would be the outlet to Jordan Morris in behind, which would be a bit of your game plan away from home. Couldn't keep possession, which is what Brian Schmesser's team is built on. Alonso would have helped. And I watched that. And not to make this, you know, all about Alonso, but you do now start to see the value of a player like that. Now he's not there. What can you do? Christian Rodin is exceptional. Gustav Svensson is exceptional. Their skill sets are different to what Ozzy had, however. So you have to use the skill sets you have. So what I would have maybe liked to see the Sounders do is this. We know in 80%, I want to say 90% of the games the Sounders play through the course of an MLS season, the tactics Schmetzer and his coaching staff employ, they're going to dominate possession. They would control the ball. They'll build out of the back. They'll play the one-twos. They'll attack 70% down the left-hand side dynamic and then 30% down the right-hand side where it's more Kelvin supporting Jordan from behind You know, in terms of the wing play. Sometimes they'll go through the middle. But we know how they like to play, and I love that style. That's why I respect Schmetzer so much because that's my understanding of football is you keep the ball, you dominate, you ask the questions. Home or away, we play the same way. What do you do when you meet a team that is not only as good as you at doing that, but maybe on any given day can actually do it better than you can do it? And that's what LAFC was. Their build-up, their possession, that's what they want to do as well. How do you respond to that? Plan B. And plan B for me doesn't have to be drastic from plan A. I don't want to see the sound to start playing long balls. You're playing long balls to Victor Rodriguez. He's five foot nothing. Nico's five foot nothing. They're not going to win anything in the air. You don't start playing long balls to these kind of players. But how then do you build? So one suggestion I would have is instead of trying to build through the back in the way they do, you have to start skipping lines. So if the ball goes to Leardam or the ball goes to Brad Smith, rather than trying to find Brad Smith trying to find Victor Rodriguez like he normally does, you go beyond Victor to the next line, and the next line will be your striker. Raul Ruiz Diaz when he's playing, Will Brin when he's playing, Jordan Morris if he's up top, you skip that line. So maybe it's a chipped ball into that player, or even better, along the ground, a driven pass if you can pass through the lines of the other team and then the rest of the group supports. You're still passing, but you're just not doing the short pass that can be intercepted and then you're facing a counter-attack or an amazing attack from LAFC. So those kinds of tweaks, or maybe, you know, we're going to go build more through the middle because these guys are closing the wings or we're going to build on the right-hand side. You try to find ways. I thought the Sounders felt we have our style. We're going to try to play that. On the day, they were outplayed. Give all credit to LAFC. So it's an incredible team, an incredible team. They're not, you know, the greatest team we've ever seen or the best thing since sliced bread, like some people are saying, but we have to appreciate the way the league's grown. The tactics are a million times better than when even I played. And that was just 10 years ago. Every team played 4-4-2. If a team was trying 4-3-3, it was revolutionary. Now every team's pretty much playing different formations. You're seeing different tactics. There's actual tactical battles. It's not just the team with the best players will mostly win. You actually have to think and have tactics. And it's incredible to watch the rise of the league in that way. And the battle between the two masters on the dugout is just as good as the game on the pitch. And I would say on Sunday, what I would like to see LAFC do is come to CenturyLink and play in the exact same way. So many times you see teams go away from home and they adjust and they more defensive. No, I want to see them play in the same exact way because I think Seattle will learn, will work on things over the next couple of days in training and has the ability to expose them. As it was, Seattle lost 4-1. 
you have to say the result is what it is. The way they lost wasn't nice. Some easy goals in a sense. I know Roman Torres wishes he could take that play back, you know, and they kind of got in a bit too easily on a team that is much better defensively than they showed. Then you want to see a response. And we saw it to an extent against San Jose. I thought the Sounders had to come out very fast last night and he got a fast start, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. The problem is when you're on top and you don't score, you're asking for trouble. And you give a team confidence and you can see this is the best San Jose I've seen attacking-wise in a long time. The coach, we saw him with Chivas. Was it Chivas? Yeah, goal, yeah, it was Chivas, Almeida. He was a great player too. I remember watching him um, as a player. He's a really good coach. He has new ideas, which helps MLS grow again. As the players adjust to his ideas, that's going to be a very dangerous team, especially going forward. And as they grew into the game, they create so many problems for the Sounders. And I was surprised by that, to be honest. So... Marcus Hanneman called, and Casey Keller called the performance incomplete, and I would agree with that. There was very good moments, and then there was just that little bit that was missing that you would expect to have at home to put a team like San Jose away. In the big picture, it's two points dropped. has to be home game, a rebound game that you want to come back and reassert yourselves. But if you zoom in, it's a point gain because if you're 2-0 down and you have to score two goals in the second half, you'll take that every day of the week. And the Sounders showed their character, came back 2-2, which sets them up perfectly for the game on Sunday against LAFC, which we will preview later on. Right after we come back, we're going to be hearing my conversation with Arlo White, sat down, had a great chat um, with a guy who I probably listen to Arlo two, three times a week, depending on the games he's calling, because I watch a lot of the NBC um, games for the Premiership. And, you know, Arlo's on there doing a great job, had a great time here in Seattle as you'll hear he loves this place still holds it very dearly and maybe we'll see him back here one day but stay tuned I'm Steve Zakwani this is Winging It with Zakwani we'll be back with more oh, hey! <laughs> oh mate how you doing man I'm good, so good to see you mate so good to see you it's been so long it's been there maybe like seven eight years it's got to be at least it's got to be at least very recently, at the start of the year, I was very fortunate to be able to go back home on a special project we're working on here at Sounders FC. And one of the people that I was able to spend some time with, quality time with, was Arlo White. Um, he invited us into his home. I sat down with Arlo and had a fantastic conversation. I learned something new about the inaugural game that I never knew. So that convo is one of the ones where if you're a fan of the Sounders, the history of the club, and some of the big moments, you're definitely going to enjoy our chat. So I'll stop talking now and hand it over to my conversation with Arlo White when we caught up back in February. We hear your voice every weekend, sometimes at 4 a.m. <laughs> me, personally, I enjoy those broadcasts. Um, but you tell us for yourself, how much are you enjoying um, being back in England and kind of being the voice of the most entertaining league in the world to the American fan base? Well, I often um, think about what people in Seattle are doing at 4.30 a.m. When, when the early game kicks off and we're doing it. And I think you deserve a good game here for getting up in what is essentially the middle of the night on, on the West Coast. Um, but having, having worked for the Sounders in the American market and seeing the passion for the game in the United States and, and then carrying on in MLS with NBC, but then being given the opportunity to come home, essentially, to, to like you say, commentate on what I believe is the, the most entertaining league in the world, um, it's, it's an absolute dream come true. I mean, I wouldn't sw have swapped my two years in Seattle for, for anything 
Um, it was an incredible experience. But, but now, with, with being at home around family and going to these incredible games every week, Manchester City, the football they play under Guardiola, Liverpool, hopefully we have a title race this year under, under Jurgen Klopp. Um, it's incredible and it's a privilege to do it. And, it's, and it means that I get to mix my, my love of America and my respect for America and my you know, little small part that I play in growing the game in the States. I mix that with being at home and seeing you know, some of the, the great games each week. So for me, it's a perfect mix and long may it continue. Yeah, you were the voice of so many great soundless moments. Um, but tell us, how, how did that even come about? How did you end up becoming the voice of the Sounders? So, so my involvement with the Sounders came from me being interested in NFL. So I was one of the very few at BBC Radio who knew anything about American football. So when they got the rights to the Super Bowl, I kind of put my hand up and said, I'd quite like to do that, if I can, please. Um, and they sent me away to do five... Super Bowls. Now, when you think about it, with the time difference, the Super Bowl kicks off at about half 11 on a Sunday night and continues through the early hours of the morning. No one's listening. But there you are. You've spent a week in the, in the city. It might have been Arizona. It might have been Miami, you know, going to the parties, having a good time. I can say this now because I've been out of the BBC for a while. Um, and then commentating on the game. So it was amazing. And I loved the NFL. Um, I actually did the Seahawks um, Super Bowl against the Steelers, which didn't go so well. Thankfully, they, they won one since. Um, but I met Brian O'Connell and, um, and Gary through that. And uh, we kept in touch. And then when I found out that, uh, that the Sounders were going to come into, into fruition and they were involved with the, the Seahawks as they were in the, in the opening few years, we kept in touch. And I came over for my first game in 2010. Kevin Calabro was the voice of the, the Sounders in the first year. And I think he had a vacation halfway through the season. So I was asked to come in to the uh, Houston Dynamo game. So it was my first broadcast uh, with Greg Vanny, who went on to coach uh, Toronto FC, didn't he? Um, beautiful sunny day at Questfield, as it was then. A 2-1 win, a Freddie Montero goal that to this day I don't think crossed the line, but we don't need to go into that. And, uh, and from then, uh, my relationship sort of bloomed with the team and they asked me to come and be the voice from the next season in 2010. So uh, that's where the relationship started. And you also saw some big moments. I want to go through some of them with you, um, the ones that we kind of picked out as big ones. Um, first, two Open Cup finals. Yeah. The first year at home to Columbus Crew, and I believe then it was Chicago Fire. What's your memories from those nights? Well, firstly, I was absolutely delighted that the Sounders took the US Open Cup as seriously as they did. It was a big deal for, for Adrian and for Ziggy and the entire club. And I come from a culture in England where the FA Cup, the oldest cup competition in the world, is a big deal here. So the Sounders, I think, took the competition more seriously than perhaps other MLS clubs did at the time. And I think in doing that, they've turned the US Open Cup into a major trophy that's now taken seriously around the league. And those nights at Starfire in the lead up to the finals were so special. The place was rammed. The atmosphere was brilliant. It was a very intimate setting and the visiting teams just couldn't deal with it. You played brilliantly in most of those games that I remember. And I remember the semi-finals and those epic contests. And the fact that Seattle just wanted it so badly just blew opposition teams away. And then, of course, you get to the final and you get to host the final, which of Obviously, it's an advantage, but because Adrian had thought ahead in the situation, manipulated the system, fantastic. We get to play both finals at, at Quest Field, CenturyLink Field. I remember in the build-up 
to the Columbus game, having to appear on radio and television around Seattle, Cairo Radio, ESPN 710, KJR, to promote it. Because the concept of a, of a knockout cup was alien to a lot of fans in Seattle, particularly in the early days of the Sounders. And it wasn't part of the season ticket, so people had to buy a ticket for the final. And from a standing start to get over 30,000 to both finals was absolutely incredible. So to me, I remember the atmospheres at both games. They were the standouts more than anything because we were worried. When, when the Sounders qualified, you're worried. You don't want to play this game with a crowd of 10,000. There's silverware at stake here. There's a trophy at stake. This is a young club who can make its mark if they start winning stuff early. So to do that and to do it twice in front of, in front of you know, packed houses because it was the lower tier was very, very special. Do you remember your call on the Ozzy Alonso ball? Yeah, I do. I, I was reminded of it the other day. Somebody, somebody put it on Twitter, and I think it was the anniversary of it. And I, I just I lost the plot. I just couldn't, I couldn't contain myself because it was the 95th minute, I think, and the ball was in the corner, and I'm thinking, keep the ball there. And then it popped out to Ozzy, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to, he's going to try and score. And I know there's about four or five sounders over in the corner. If they break away, then they could equalise. Because it was only 1-0 at the time, wasn't it? And then he just drops his shoulder, drifts past the first defender, then cuts diagonally into the penalty area. Then he th- you think he's going to shoot. Goalkeeper goes down. He rolls it past the goalkeeper and into the empty net. And I just lost the plot. And I had to quickly get, gather my thoughts again because that was the third straight US Open Cup. And that's a huge achievement to have, to have won it in the inaugural season to have won it against Columbus in 2010 and then to win, to three-peat in 2011. And that was the moment that sealed it. Aussie just went crazy. Everybody went crazy. And I almost fell out the booth. Yeah. Another great moment was Casey Keller's last season. Mm. I think he played San Jose and he had a series of saves that people still talk about to this day. And you were on that call as well. Well, I, <clears throat> what I remember from that game, there were 64,000 fans in, uh, in at CenturyLink Field. And for an MLS regular season game, that was absolutely astonishing. Seattle led the way with these, the volume of crowds, with, with the, the fan engagement and the fact that the Sounders were such a big deal in the city of Seattle. I know Atlanta have done very well on that score more recently, but this was 2011. This was unheard of at that time. And Casey being the legend that he is, he came back three seasons. He was absolutely magnificent. The knees were creaking at this point on his own admission. He's 41 years old and this is his farewell game. And the Sounders are uh, 1-0 down to San Jose. And we're thinking, come on, don't lose tonight, guys. And it was a four-time save. And you see how quickly he comes off the line. I think it was Dawkins first who had the first attempt. And he saves that. Then Wondolowski has an attempt. Then Dawkins and Wondolowski again. And you see how quickly Casey gets up after each save, how quickly the legs are moving, how he retreats back towards his six-yard box and how quickly he then darts out and saves it. At, I think it was Wondolowski's feet. Absolutely astonishing. And I don't think I've heard a louder cheer at a Sounders game for any goal. It was the four saves. People were going crazy. But Seattle still had to go and win the game. And Ochoa scored after 81 minutes, I think. And then Montero got the winning goal, a volley into the corner. And the place went completely mental. And I just remember thinking, A, relief. Thank goodness you've not lost in Casey's farewell game. Thank goodness Casey's had a memorable moment in his, in his farewell game. And then thank goodness we won the farewell game. It was a magnificent night. 
you left from the voice of the Sounders to the voice of MLS, but you still were involved in a very big Sounders moment, a moment involving myself, obviously. It was my comeback after my broken leg against Colorado. Um, and I've listened to that a few times, so I'm familiar with your call on that, but your memories from that night. Well, it was very personal for me because we're friends and I was there on the night of the incident in Colorado. Um, so there was an irony in the fact that the comeback game was against Colorado and Brian Mullins was on the field when you came back onto, onto the pitch who had challenged you uh, down at Dick's Sporting Goods Park. I remember I was on the radio call that night and we had a, we had a, a monitor and I saw the tackle and I saw you go into the air, but I didn't realise the severity of the situation because I was looking at the melee afterwards rather than at the screen. And, and thankfully, look, I'm, I'm glad I, I didn't see it in all its, you know, all its detail. Um, and obviously I was in the hotel for the next morning and Ziggy, I had an early flight out. And the, the one man in reception the next morning at about six o'clock was Ziggy. And I don't think he'd slept that night. He'd been to see you the night before. And he, I think, was the first guy in to see you the next morning in, in hospital down in, in Denver. So having experienced that situation as the voice of the club and you being the player and the character that you, that you are and you were on the wing for the Sounders and such a huge part of what they were doing, this, it was obviously something that I think everybody at the club took to their, to their hearts and, and felt for you and felt for the club and just, just wanted you to be okay, you know. And to see you come back and the whole thing that happened, that it was against Colorado with Brian Mullins on the field. Um, and you, I can remember you crouching down on the touchline and, and Ziggy comes over and gives you a hug and, and some moments of, uh, of, of comfort and encouragement, I'm sure. Crowd are going crazy. And then did Jeff Laurentowitz score a goal? That was offside, was it? Was it disallowed? And I'm thinking, not now, Jeff. And I appreciate the ginger ninja, and, and he's been a good player, but really this is not appropriate, Jeff. This is Steve's moment. Could you please just let this happen? Um, so it was, it was a bit odd, because we had to reflect the fact that, that Jeff had just scored this offside goal. But then when you came on and the, and the roar, and, and f- working for NBC obviously was a different dynamic for me, because I'm not the, sound, the voice of the sounders anymore. I've got to reflect this, you know, neutrally. But... Um, yeah, I had a, bit, a hard time keeping it together at that point because I was so happy for you, so proud of you, um, and proud of the club because um, I knew what, uh, how long that journey was to come back. So that was a very special moment. Yeah. Um, one thing we enjoy and I enjoy is every time Newcastle play, you do manage to throw in a nice every title time. reference. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Portland fans, I go on Twitter, oh, talking about Seattle again, he's got to try and shoehorn it in. He's an American player. Of yeah. course I'm going to mention the fact he's from O'Day High School yeah. in the centre of uh, Seattle. I absolutely love that. Um, but you do have a great connection with the Sounders fan base. So you don't, you don't normally see maybe a commentator and the fans having kind of a great rapport. You seem to have that. People in Seattle still talk about Arlo White. They still message you on Twitter. They mention your name. What do you think built that and what's behind that? And what do you think about kind of the Sounders fan base? I think I arrived at a very special time. And it was a meeting of... of um, a club that had just started, but had captured the imagination of the local population and the local fan base. And I was at a point in my career where I was grateful of being given a magnificent opportunity. Um, I was at the BBC for 10 years, but they had a lot of soccer announcers, so I didn't get many opportunities to do it. And it's something that I thought I was born to do. I wanted to do it from the age of six. 
and, and Gary Wright and Adrian Hanauer and Joe Roth uh, and these guys were giving me the opportunity to be the voice of a, of a club. And it wasn't like I was going to an MLS club that got crowds of seven or 8,000 each week. I was coming to basically what was a club that was run like an NFL franchise. And I'd done my research. I realised how many season ticket holders there were. I knew that Freddie Lundberg played. I knew that Casey Keller played. And I knew it was a magnificent city. So for me, it was a no-brainer. The people at the BBC thought I was mad to leave, having spent 10 years building my, my career up there. But I knew I was onto something special. So I was able, because my wife and children didn't come over straight away for the first season, I was able to throw myself into the, into the job. So I was at training most days. Um, I, didn't, I didn't go out in the town as much as what people probably expected me to do. Oh, you're going to Seattle on your own, are you? Right, that should be interesting. So I bought a big widescreen TV. I got the best cable package possible. Uh, and I just sat there watching box sets most of the time in the evening. And I researched the opposition teams. So I made sure that I could educate people into who was coming into town. Um, and, I, and I got out into the community as much as I could when the club were asking me to do various things around the city. So... It was very special, very special, and, and the connection was there straight away. And the, the team were good and making it to the playoffs and making it and winning US Open Cups. So I was part of something that was successful. And, and I'd like to think that I got as much out of it, or Sounders got as much out of it as I did, because I certainly got a lot out of it. They remained two of the best years of my life. And last but not least, um, the two years you were there with the Sounders, the head coach was Ziggy Schmidt, um, who now has passed away. Legacy-wise, just maybe... Try and put into words the kind of legacy Ziggy Schmidt has with this, not just the Sounders, but US soccer in general. I doubt the Sounders will be in the situation that they are in and they were in without Ziggy's input, without his wisdom, without his guidance. I've never met a man more obsessed with the game of football. Um, from the first moment I met him, I came down to pre-season camp. I don't know whether you remember, before the 2010 season, I went down to La Manga in Spain. Um, because Brian O'Connell, who, who was in charge of the broadcasting at the time, said to me, look, you will get respect from the players and the coaching staff if you're there from day one of the season, which is when you went down to La Manga in Spain. And I remember sitting with him watching Champions League in the, in the hotel bar, and my goodness, the way he dissected a game of football, he's seen things, it's like a beautiful mind, he's seen things that I, just, I could never see in a game of soccer. And the way he talked about it with the passion... Um, with the borderline obsession. I remember going for, for drinks in Bellevue after certain games with Alan Hinton and listening to those two. To, I didn't say a word because there's nothing I could add to the level, the football IQ in those conversations. Um, so as a patriarchal figure for the Sounders, when they first came in, he, he, he almost raised the club like a, like a child um, for the best part of eight seasons. Um, me and that's the sort of man he was thanks again to Arlo White for making the time to stop by and see us when we were back there in the UK hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Arlo White stay tuned don't go anywhere when we come back we'll be previewing 
Sunday's game against LAFC, a massive game. And I'll be telling you the three things you should be looking out for in this upcoming game. Sounders at home against LAFC. Very few regular season games I get super excited for. This is one of them. So I, I try to watch these games as a fan. Sometimes I'm a fan of tactics, a fan of how teams try to play, and I'm a massive fan of adjustments. When a team beats you or you've even beaten a team, how do you adjust from game to game? It's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of NBA playoffs because you're playing the same team five, six, seven times, and you have to try new things and have new ideas and try to catch them out. And in our sport, it's very rare you get to play a team twice in a week. For the Sounders, they had a game in between. For LAFC, they've had all week to prepare for the Sounders. So the first thing, number one, that I'll be looking out for is adjustments. What adjustments will Brian Schmetzer make? What adjustments is he going to make when he sees, okay, these guys are going to press us? Or Bob Bradley, is he going to say, they're going to expect the press to be as high as it was. We're actually going to sit a bit deeper, let them build and surprise them that way. I want to see what these two coaches, two of the best in MLS in thinking the game, what they come up with. I really, really want to see what adjustments both coaches make. Number two, the midfield battle. Let's be blunt. The Sounders lost the midfield battle in L.A., the LA Galaxy midfielders, and you can include Carlos Vela in that because he dropped in very deep at times, pick up the ball, make the game, outplayed the Sounders midfield, which you never really see. And we didn't call the Victor Rodriguez game name that much. Nico didn't have one of his best days. Christian Rodan, Gustav Svensson won at the dominating best they have been so far through the year. They lost the midfield battle. That's the engine room. All the great coaches I grew up under, I watched, you know, from Alex Ferguson to Arsene Wenger, would always say the game is won and lost in the midfield. How true that is, you can have your own opinions, but it's a big part of it. You have to win the midfield battle because you do that, you dominate the possession. You're, it means you're getting the ball to your dangerous strikers or into the dangerous areas more than the other team, and you're stopping them from doing that. And all those things went to LAFC's favour on this past Sunday. So this coming Sunday, the Sounders have to reassert themselves. Christian Rodan has to step up and show you're not going to come to CenturyLink and run the midfield while I'm here. Gustav Svensson, the same. Nico Lodero has got to outplay Carlos Vera, for example. And that leads me to number three, the battle of the number 10s. How fortunate are we to have two exceptional players like here, two geniuses like Nico Lodero and Carlos Vera. They're very different. Vera's very direct to goal, very dangerous. And the thing about Carlos Vera, people don't know, he was very successful in La Liga. He's not a guy who kind of, you know, kind of like his Mexican teammate, Dos Santos, who he's done well here and there, more for the national team at times, but he never really established himself in Europe. Carlos Vera did. He went to Arsenal when he was very young, didn't get many opportunities, but you could see the talent. Then he played in La Liga and... The guy was good. The guy was good. So when you hear things like Barcelona may have been interested, 
not as far-fetched as you would think. Not as far-fetched as you would think. They, he could play on the bench for that team, no problem, because they end up signing Kevin Prince-Boltang, who Carlos Vela is better than at this present time. So that's the caliber of player LAFC has, and he looks motivated. Bob Bradley seems to have convinced him, convinced him that it's his team, it's his league. He has like 10 goals in nine games. These are messy numbers he's doing in MLS. We don't typically always see that. So he's the real deal. And he's going to come here and see the fans. They get up for these type of games. Listen, the great players shared locker rooms with many of them. When we're sitting in the dressing room, there's something in their eye. You see it before the game. They, they have this look where they get up for the big games. And he's one of those. But fear not, because on the other side, our side, the sounder side, there is an equally special number 10 who does it in different ways. The thing with Nico is this. Tactically, he's a conundrum, I think, because he's not a true number 10 in that sense. He just moves all over the pitch. If we could get his running numbers, his stats, he would be incredible. He could be as good at running the marathon as he is at running on the pitch. The guy just doesn't stop running. The issue is when he leaves the position to go and find the ball and the ball turns over, they lose the ball. Good teams like LAFC expose and exploit the space he left. So the Sounders have got to figure out a way when Nico, who starts centrally, goes to the right or goes to the left and he drops deep and the ball's lost, the space he was supposed to be in defensively, who's going to cover that space? That's one thing. But the positive spin on the same side of that coin is he pops up in positions you normally wouldn't see a number 10 and he's very good when he does. When he comes to the left-hand side especially and he starts playing those little one-twos with Brad Smith and Victor Rodriguez and they play three-on-two or three-on-one or 2v1 against the opposition, no one can live with them. Not one team, not one defensive group in this league can live with that trio when Nico comes on that side. And when he, when he goes close to Jordan and Kelvin Ledham on the other side, to a lesser extent, he can do that. Underneath Raul Ruiz Diaz, who we pray, we pray, will be back this weekend because he almost guarantees you a goal when he plays as well. But it's the number 10s. They do it in different ways, but I almost want to go out on a limb and say, yes, the game is won and lost in the midfield, but I think whichever number 10 has more influence on the game is allowed to impose their style, whether it's Carlos Vela driving at the heart of the Sounders' defense, committing defenders, playing free balls, getting in the box, trying to finish the ball, or Nico dropping deep, playing almost like a quarterback, springing people in behind, playing the one-twos he does with the players. Whoever does more of their game, whoever is more themselves, whoever shows that if Carlos Vela shows who he is more, the Nico shows who he is, I think that team will win. That's what I'm going to be watching for. Those two number 10s, that battle is going to be exciting. No matter what happens, we're in for an excellent game, I think. I don't think we're going to see a, a bore draw, a boring defensive battle. Brian Schmetz, is, he, 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 I know him. I know him. I know him. He will never say this, but I, he's thinking about this game because he understands that LA showed up on Sunday, the Sounders didn't. And now at your home, this is the chance you get to show up and show we're contending with these guys and not let them start building a gap, getting away from you in the race for the number one seed in the West and overall support shield. So we're in for an exciting game. So make sure you're watching this game on Sunday because it's going to be one of those games where we're going to probably have a lot to talk about next week regarding this game and just watch the tactical battle. You're watching two great coaches, two great teams. And as a neutral, enjoy it. As a Sounders fan, your heart's going to be in your mouth. Your blood pressure is going to be high. I understand that. But try to see the game for what it is because MLS is at a place now where we actually can look forward to real tactical battles, very high quality, top-level players led by Carlos Vea and Nico Ladero. 
Well, that's all we have time for on the podcast this week. We can talk about this game all day. But now the talking's done. We'll sit back, watch Sunday afternoon, 12.30 at Century Link Field. Seattle Sounders against LAFC. It's the rematch coming so quickly. Let me know your thoughts as always on social media. The Sounders account, my account, wherever. Just hit us with your questions. We're going to do a better job of actually getting back to answering your questions. Someone mentioned that to me the other day. We've not done as much of that this year, but we will. We will. It's just been so much fun talking about the great start to the season. I'm Steve Zakwani. This is Winging It with Zakwani. I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.